Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, it's been a while, but the news this week has been fascinating enough that we don't need to do a review of all of the weeks that we've missed. I want to start with nuclear energy. There's been a few stories bubbling up. One of them which actually completely surprised me is a story that the UK is going to be producing uh, a very enriched type of uranium. This is uh, a story that came out of nowhere as far as I'm concerned, even though I've been following the nuclear story very closely. The idea is that we're going to try and circumvent Russia's stranglehold on this particular type of uranium, which is going to be used in future, I guess, updated nuclear reactors. Um, The stranglehold is quite extreme once you factor in the transport of uh, the, the materials used as nuclear fuel via Russia, even though they come from Kazakhstan for a good chunk of that. What do you make of this? Were you surprised by it? I'm delighted, Biden. Hello, everybody. Sorry, I've been in the jungle. I've been away for a little bit. Uh, no, I, I'm delighted. By, I mean, look, back in the 1950s, the UK made a decision. We wanted to be technologically absolutely in the vanguard of the whole nuclear revolution. And we were. We were. For many, many years, we were absolutely up there, one of the leading countries in the world. And we've let all of that go. I mean, desperately let that go. So the fact there is at last some ambition for us to be looking for developing nuclear energy, for moving nuclear energy on. We haven't yet quite got the Holy Grail, but we're heading in that direction. Our thinking on small modular reactors, our thinking in different enriched types of uranium, you know, our thinking on this whole big debate of fission v. fusion. There are some good things happening. Uh, now, whether this is because of government or despite of government, I don't know the answer. But no, There is a big change in thinking in this country. And can I say more broadly, right across the Western world, we've touched on this before, if you look at opinion polling on nuclear power over the last five years, there is a slowly growing acceptance that this is the only form, I mean the only form, of low carbon output reliable energy that exists. There's nothing else. There is literally, you can build build as many wretched wind turbines as you like, but you will always suffer from intermittency. You will always suffer risk of blackouts. And once again, living in rural England, I've had two big power blackouts over the Christmas holidays because it's been blowing a gale. And I mean, literally, it's all well and good putting a candle on and getting a headlamp, and you can live, but you can't work because everything we do needs electricity everything we do needs connectivity so i think there's a lot a lot more common sense now around nuclear power and and even the german greens you know have begun to change their position um, on nuclear energy and that's why i think you know we have been over the course of the last few months you know pretty bullish about uranium stocks pretty bullish about uranium itself uh, and and we've now got a big statement today out of the british government that we're about to, say about to, there's a big lag time with all of this, but we aim to produce more nuclear energy than we have for 70 years. Now, you know, Boris Johnson said the same thing. So this is not much more than a regurgitation of what we had. But I think the intent is there. And I think you're going to see it right across the Western world. 
The other bits of news we've had is that the French are out looking at expanding nuclear quite significantly. They've got a range, I think it's between 6 and 14 reactors. They want to build new ones. Uh, the UK is going to try and keep its nuclear reactors going for a little bit longer from some extensions, same as in, in Germany. But this nuclear fuel announcement seems to imply that there's actually something to this now. Because, I mean, they wouldn't put, I think it's you know, hundreds of millions of pounds in, into yeah. setting up this production facility in the northwest of England. This, something's going to use it, which really Im implies that this build-out is at last going to happen. Yeah, I mean, look, it'd be no France. I mean, no country invested more in nuclear energy than France half a century ago. But they've allowed their stations to rot, basically, many to come offline, many to be deeply inefficient. Uh, and I think, you know, what, what the Brits are seeing is that if they can get this enrichment right, there are a lot of customers potentially around the world, starting with our friends 21 miles over the English Channel from Dover. So, yeah, I think everyone understands that nuclear is in for a mega decade um, of investment, of building. Still very large debates about where the money comes from. You know, Hinkley Point, for example, that's being built at the moment, is being built with Chinese money. Uh, that gives many of us quite grave political uh, reservations, uh, let alone strategic uh, reservations. You know, is there enough money that can come for the private sector for this? Is this one of those cases where we go back to the concept of public-private partnerships? I think all of that uh, is to be thought through. But public opinion is moving this way. And I, I just don't see, barring something awful happening, I just don't see that, that being reversed. Ironically enough, we've also got an enormous gas glut coming towards us in the next few years. Even more recently, we've got the EU and US gas storage facilities operating at almost record levels for this time of year. So gas production is going to boom over the next few years. Gas right now is getting used quite heavily. I think we've, we're close to records or at records for oil consumption and production too. So it seems like fossil fuels are absolutely booming as well. Well, look, I mean, you know, anybody with half a brain knows that even if we in the United Kingdom were to meet our net zero targets by 2050, which incidentally we won't, but even if we did reach our net zero targets, we would still be consuming considerable quantities of oil and gas. And everyone accepts that, or apart from a few loonies, everyone accepts that and knows that. Um, uh, and that isn't going to change. And it's why, belatedly, albeit somewhat reluctantly, and with one-year uh, renewals, you know, the government is actually allowing new licenses in the North Sea for oil and gas exploration. And it's led to one MP resigning and calling a by-election. Well, he should probably never have been a Tory party in the first place. So, yeah, you know, it, 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 I mean, we've been saying this for a long, long time, Nick, that, 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 that we are using more and more energy. We rely on energy more in the 21st century than we have at any point in our lives. There is absolutely zero prospect of that changing. And if we're going to get anywhere near the, the new target of 2035, after which any new motor car you buy will have to be an electric vehicle. Uh, we're going to go. We're going to need nuclear. We're going to need oil. We're going to need gas. And you can build. You know, you can despoil the North Sea with wind turbines as well. And it still won't be enough to fuel the EV revolution. Total demand for energy might be booming as much as you say, but I saw a statistics today that the German, I think, the German on average, so per person is using about as much energy energy as they did back in 1976. 
because they've had this absolutely vast crash in their industry in Germany because, of course, of the high energy prices in the first place. So there's we've got sort of the case of what not to do uh, in places like Germany, IDAD, California, and a couple of other places that list. Uh, and then we've got sort of prosperity in places that have been invested in gas, places like the US, which recently became the world's number one supplier of gas. So there's these sort of learning opportunities now where people are seeing you know, decision makers around the world are seeing what happens if you go down the renewables route and what happens if you go down the fossil fuel route. Yeah, I mean, what's happening in Germany is an absolute tragedy. You know, a, a, a major global leading, I think we can say, manufacturing nation is is completely losing its way and is doing it by being uncompetitive, is doing it by pricing itself out of the markets through energy costs. It's seeing that industrial production move to other parts of the world and, and, and none of this reduces carbon dioxide emissions. None of it. In fact, the opposite. Because stuff gets made in the Far East and then shipped back to Germany or wherever else it may be. But globally, if you think about energy globally, you know, let's face it, most of the world is poor. Most of the world doesn't want to be poor. Do you know what? They want fridges. They want freezers. They want motor cars. They want to go on holiday. No, 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 no. Global demand for energy is only going in one direction. Sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this content, you can get it every single day. Just click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com. Get a daily email from our team of experts. Thank you. Let's turn to politics then. There's been a bit of action in the EU. I'm especially fascinated by what's going on in Poland, but also in my original home of Germany with the protests of the the, the uh, farmers especially, but a couple of other parts of the German country as well. I don't know which one you want to start with, um, but what's behind this uprising of, uh, of anger in places where previously... You know, they, they sort of democratically opposed the EU at worst. They didn't quite do what was going on now. Well, if we sort of, let's, let, let's do stereotypes for a minute, just for a bit of fun. We expect Mediterraneans to throw their arms in the air, shout and scream, storm out of the room, and then come back a couple of minutes later. But we expect the Northern, Protestant, Dutch, uh, and we absolutely expect uh, the reserve Germans to be incredibly calm to express dissatisfaction through the ballot box, but generally, uh, certainly post-1945, uh, both those countries to reach consensual views on virtually everything. If we'd sat here five years ago, and I'd said to you there'd be huge uprisings in the Netherlands and Germany, you would not have believed me. But boy, the protests. I mean, Munich alone, five and a half thousand tractors drove into the city. Uh, you look at Berlin, the A2, the busiest motorway in Europe was blocked by the farmers. I was on the M20. It was delightful. There was nothing coming through the Channel Tunnel. <laughs> you know, um, remarkable, truly remarkable. But and actually, it it sort of leads on from the Gilets Jaunes. You know, what was it that led to those violent protests in Paris every week? Well, actually, to begin with, to begin with, it was a reduction of the speed limits on rural roads, and then of course it was raising of fuel juices. So you've got this popular uprising happening. You know, of course the French we expect it, but but we've got this popular uprising happening. And the political implications are enormous. You know, Gerd Wilders, who I, I I've always been a bit troubled by Gerd Wilders. You know, you can disagree with extreme Islam, but to demand the Quran is banned 
strikes me, you're making yourself as bad as those that you criticize. So I've never had a political affinity with him. Um, but, you know, he topped the poll in the Netherlands. He'll probably be the next prime minister. Um, and in Germany, uh, you know, the AFD now, uh, the AFD now are consistently, week on week, polling 22, 23%. And you compare that with Schultz's socialists, and Schultz is the chancellor, and they're on 14%. So something remarkable politically is happening in Germany, in France, every opinion poll will tell you, um, despite the childlike new prime minister in France, uh, that Le Pen is going to be the next president. Um, we've seen reversals in Poland. Poland, which had been very conservative, has now got the Brussels poster boy Donald Tusk in place, whose first act has been to send in police with truncheons and close down the state broadcaster. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. But this is a big year. We've got European elections coming in early June. Um, we've got the prospect of a very large critical group in the European Parliament. I mean, I, I shouldn't say this because I'll get in terrible trouble, but I sort of almost wish I was there leading them, you know. <laughs> but we've done our bit. I mean, don't forget, when I was leading groups in the European Parliament, we were about that big. Um, this is now going to be a very, very considerable, maybe, I don't know, maybe a third plus of MEPs after June will be very, very critical of centralised Brussels, uh, Brussels control of the European Commission system. Um, so, yeah, there's some big, big political change. And that's going to kick through to energy policy. That's going to kick through to all the things that we've been saying month after month after month, which is, you know, you could live in an idealised world of net zero, but it's too expensive. It doesn't work. And ultimately, ultimately, ordinary folk do not want to pick up the tab. And the people on the ground are the ones experiencing the consequences. I want to quickly add that the interesting thing about the AFD is that their vote support is very concentrated, very much in the east of Germany, which means they will actually get elected even at those you know, double digit, 20% um, of the share of the vote. Uh, nationally, that's concentrated in, in certain places, helping to get elected. Um, I want to examine a bit more closely what's going on in Poland because. I mean, you you said you're a bit worried about Wilders because he's willing to ban the Quran, which is doing exactly what you know he's he's imposing. Isn't it the same for what the, the Polish government's just done? You know, they're supposed to be pro-democratic, they're supposed to be you know open-minded, uh, and they're supposed to support things like the state broadcaster and not just arrest politicians. So there's this weird hypocritical, um, you know, what what governments have been criticizing others for doing, they're suddenly doing themselves. Yeah, I mean, look, you know. If, if, if the Tusk government says that Polsky Radio and the state TV broadcaster have been filled up with very conservative thinkers, they may be right. I mean, that's, what the, that's what governments do. You know, governments appoint people to public bodies who are of their thinking and are, and are their mates. It happens all over the world. It always has. It always will. So if that's Tusk's objection, well, that's fine. Just replace people. But to send the police in with truncheons and literally, literally taking it off air, the biggest radio and TV stations in Poland were literally taken off air. What do we think about that? Well, two things, really. Number one, that somehow the globalist left, the globalist liberal left, think they have a moral superiority. Um, and therefore, it's all about means and ends. And, and it doesn't matter what they do. It, you know, They can justify in their own minds what they're doing. Um, funny, isn't it? You know, We all scream at Putin for putting Navalny 
out in the gulag, and yet, you know, they want to put Trump in prison. And I mean, it's quite ironic. Um, uh, but also, I think what prompts this is fear. I, I, I think there is great fear in Brussels. I think there is great fear in the UN as well. I, I think where increasingly we're seeing just the absolute uselessness and total political bar. And I think the fear of a populist revolt is very, very real. And that probably more than anything explains the behavior of the Tusk government. 2016 was a remarkable year. A remarkable year for me. Um, you know, the only human being involved both in Brexit and the Trump campaign. <laughs> it was quite something. I think 2024 is going to be bigger than 2016. I think this whole model of big state control, interference in our lives, taxation, uh, the 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 great and the good, somehow not almost not giving a damn about the little people, the ordinary folks. And I'll give you one little example of that. The anger that is being felt, the sense of injustice that is being felt now in this country over the treatment of sub-postmasters and sub-postmistresses actually is redolent of the expenses scandal of a decade ago, of the Brexit vote. They've all got blooming CBEs, peerages, knighthoods. They've all earned millions and hundreds of innocent people have lost their livelihoods or worse. And it's almost as if the little people scream and shout and no one listens until suddenly the public get on board. And and these are the gaps that have grown up, funded and aided by big corporate global businesses. These are the gaps between our capital cities and ordinary people. And 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 yeah, I think we are going into a in, into some sort of political Revolution. I mean, I'm going to you know, spell that with a small R, not a big R. Um, and I think there is a demand that the little people are given their shot. You know, whether it's running their own businesses, in services, or farming, or whatever it is, there's a much bigger political imperative. And and so what we have to hope is that this does spawn in the next few years, you know, a bit more entrepreneurship. And let's be frank, you know, you can hate Trump if you want to. But there's no doubt that between 2016 and 2020, there were parts of America, states in America, achieving growth rates of more than 4%. That just shows you how big the prize is. So however bleak things may look, or however worried you may be about levels of indebtedness, uh, which I think could become a very real issue shortly, I think we are going to go the other way. I think within the next few years, we'll have more more realistic energy policies uh, and I think entrepreneurship will become fashionable again. I think debanking is another one on the list of, of those things that you mentioned there. Where Absolutely. Um, you were unique as far as I'm concerned in that you stuck with what you were elected to do when you went to the European Parliament. You didn't get sucked into the Brussels bubble and sort of step back on your promises. I would say Trump did. I would say Salvini did. So many people in European politics, as soon as they get elected by the protest vote, they get sucked into the bubble. You didn't. What do you think are the prospects for this next upcoming group in the European Parliament, but also in the national parliaments, uh, and possibly also Trump, of actually delivering on the things that they're voted in to do? Well, my vote was never a protest vote. I want to be clear about that. People did not vote for Nigel Farage if they wanted to stick two fingers up the establishment, tempting though that was. They wanted to vote for Nigel Farage because of the policy proposal that he put forward. So my vote was very much a positive vote. 
around Europe, yes, there are elements of a protest vote, and I get that. But I think, I think to be honest, I think most of those parties are looking at a completely different model of governance within Europe. When people become prime ministers, it can be different. Maloney has been remarkably quiet as the Italian prime minister, and, and you know she turns up at the G7 and they pat her on the head. Um, but no, I, I strength in numbers matters. I mean, you know, when I was there with a small group of Eurosceptics, they they could quite easily get bought off, or frankly blackmailed in some cases. I think with a very strong group arguing for a totally different model of European governance, namely one where the unelected commission do not have the absolute right to propose legislation and that national parliaments can't change that law even after general election victories. No, I think I think this movement is going to be much stronger this time around. I'm going to finish with an H.L. Mencken quote then. Democracy is a theory of government, government that the average person knows what they want and deserves to get it good and hard. Everyone, thanks for watching and Nigel, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for watching and I hope you agree it's never been more important to take control of your own money, your own financial situation. We do a daily free email, a fortune and freedom daily email with lots of knowledge, lots of insight. It's a very useful way of protecting yourself for the future. So please click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com and get my daily email.